Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. Let me remind you now that um, the sermons on Sunday evening are briefer than in the morning, but nonetheless, we are working our way through the book of Galatians. And this is that first epistle of the Apostle Paul. Some argue 1 Thessalonians, I think Galatians. Nonetheless, everyone agrees it's early. And that this epistle is about justification by grace alone through faith alone through the work of Christ alone primarily. The Judaizers have been saying that obedience to the law of Moses is necessary in order that Christians be saved. That yes, it was Christ, but Christ plus, grace plus the law. And you'll recall that we saw last time in verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified that Paul the Apostle begins to turn them once again to this great theme of the cross. Now we come to verse 6 and following, but before we read, let us bow in prayer. Our Father, as we gather together in this evening, we are reminded of a significant portion of our congregation still traveling and pray that thou wilt bring them home to us safely and bless their labor and work. Now bless us as we turn to this portion of your word that we may understand clearly the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and what he has done for us sinners. And as we find this doctrine that is so vital, weak in many a pulpit and many a church, we pray, Father, that it will be at the core of our preaching and teaching here and at the core of our Christian living. We ask these things in the name of Christ, that your blessed Holy Spirit will open this page to us and show us some of the glories and wonders of what Jesus has done for his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather... The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, there are several Old Testament passages that form the background to this portion of Scripture that we have read tonight. Just to mention, of course, the primary one is Deuteronomy chapter 27, in which there are the curses that take place on Mount Ebal if the people of God do not obey the law that God gave to them on Sinai. The emphasis, then, is that law brings curse. And in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him, or imputed to him as righteousness, is a quotation from Genesis 15, 6. The point here is that Abraham, 
who was viewed by the Judaizers as a proto-lawkeeper, that Abraham was justified by faith. He was justified by faith, not works, because faith is simply an empty vessel that receives. It contributes nothing. It works nothing. It simply receives. And it is God who justifies and not faith. God is the justifier of the unrighteous. He is the one who justifies the ungodly. And so no one is saved by his own merit, but altogether by the work of another. There has always been and ever will be only one way of acceptance with God, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is that Abraham long ago trusted in Christ who shed his blood on a cross and was accepted by God on the basis of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and not by works of his own. When Abraham believed the promise, though he didn't understand all that it meant, though surely he did not have a picture in his mind of what the atonement was all about, though he did not understand all that we now understand as the recipients of a closed canon and a completed Bible, nonetheless, when he believed the promise of God, He was believing in Christ and trusting in the Christ who would come. So Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. And now we look back to that cross just as Abraham, trusting the Lord, believing the promise, looked ahead. We look back to that cross. And in trusting in Jesus Christ and seeing what he did there on that cross and believing in him, we also are accepted by God, not on the basis of what we do, but completely upon the basis of what Jesus did when he shed his blood for sinners like you and like me. Now we come to this very, very important passage, especially in verses 10 through 14. And I want to look at this passage with you by asking four questions. The first question is this. What is the curse? What is the curse? You'll notice the emphasis upon that in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What then is meant by the curse? Well, it is the curse of God who is the lawgiver upon all who break his law. When it speaks of the curse of the law, we shouldn't think of the law in an abstract sense as if it is severed from the lawgiver. Yes, it is the curse of the law, but it is the curse of the law because the one who gave it is an absolutely just God. It is the curse of God upon those who do not obey his law. Not just the law, but the lawgiver. And it is a necessary curse. It is called forth from the holiness of God and the justice of God from his very nature. It is a curse that is called forth by the awful sins of sinners like us. Sin, of course, is law-breaking. That's what the Scriptures teach us. And therefore, it is a necessary curse because it flows from the infinitely just nature of an infinitely holy God. It is necessitated by the nature of God, whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, that he punish sin. God is not such a God that he can behold iniquity and not punish it. God is not such a God that he can simply bypass sin. God is such a God that he must, he must necessarily curse those who break his law. And so it is a curse of God, it is a necessary curse, and it is a curse that brings judgment. 
It brought judgment upon Adam. In Adam, we find that this who was one who was the head of the human race was also under the law of God. He was given a command, and he broke that command. And when he broke that command, the whole human race sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. The whole human race has been brought into sin and confusion because of the fall of Adam. It is a curse that brought judgment upon Adam and upon the whole human race. We can follow it throughout redemptive history in the Bible. We find the Egyptians that were judged by God, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, or Nadab, and Avihu, on and on and on through the Bible. We find those who are lawbreakers cursed of God. When Christ returns, what are we told by Paul the Apostle? He will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. He will come bringing judgment, bringing that curse. And he brings judgment to all unless that curse is removed. And that's what Paul is underscoring for us here. That everyone is under this curse unless the judgment, the curse, is removed. And so that answers the question, what is the curse? And an awful thing it is to consider. That we fallen in Adam, having ourselves also broken the law of God. That God is such a just God that he cannot overlook sin, but he must punish it. God brings the curse of the law. But the second question that we want to ask in order to get at the theme that is found here is who are under the curse? And to answer that question, let us first say that every last single child of Adam is under the curse of the law. The Jew, of course, is under the curse of the law, for the Jew had this written code given at Sinai, and there is no Jew who completely kept the law of God, who kept it perfectly, or who obeyed ultimately from the heart every statute of God. The Jew is under condemnation, but the Gentile also. You remember that the Apostle Paul tells us that the Gentile, even when he did not have the written code, was nonetheless not without the law. For he tells us in Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. And so the Gentile as well has the law of God written upon his conscience, and there is no Gentile who has obeyed the law of God. So every last child of Adam, every last single one of us is under the curse of the law. Or to look at it in another way, we could answer it this way. All who are under works of law are under the curse of the law. In chapter 2, verse 16, you will remember we read, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul set up this contrast between works of the law and faith in Christ Jesus. And so all who are following works of the law in order that through works of the law they might find acceptance with God are under the curse of the law. Now there are some today who say that Paul is only concerned with what they call boundary markers. That the Apostle Paul is only concerned with, uh, with Jewishness here. Uh, to condemn circumcision and to condemn food laws and uh, special days and so forth. And so he's not concerned with the Gentile, he's not concerned with us, and certainly not with this universal curse of the law. That's certainly not what Paul is concerned with, we are told by many today. The answer to that question is many-fold. Let me just mention a couple of things to you. First of all, you will remember in Romans chapter 4 that deals with Abraham and his justification that Romans 4 begins this way. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham or our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now there's a reference here then to works with Abraham, and this was long before Sinai, long before the giving of the law, and it was prior to his circumcision. The Apostle Paul doesn't simply have circumcision and boundary markers in mind. He has the entirety of the law of God in mind. Or in Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, the Apostle says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not just a matter of circumcision. It's a matter of the entirety of the law of God. Look, you think that you need to be circumcised in order that you might be accepted by God? You have swallowed the whole curse of the law. If you think that circumcision is necessary for acceptance with God, then obedience to all of the law of God is necessary for acceptance with God. Why is Paul so concerned with works? The reason is this, because works cannot justify Works cannot make us acceptable to God. Man must have no boast before God. And so, he concludes that any and all works, any and all merit is out of place when we talk about justification except the merit of Jesus Christ alone. And so the Apostle Paul in this passage speaks of the plight that belongs to us all. Every one of us, born in sin and in iniquity, born dead in our transgressions, all of us who come into this world are under the curse of the law. And he works out our plight in two ways in verses 10 through 14. First thing he does is to say this, to rely on the law of God for acceptance with God would be a fatal mistake. He says in verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Not some things, all things. And so to rely on the law for acceptance is fatal. Now Paul's logic is simply this. Some people are committed to keeping the law for acceptance with God. But despite their commitment, they do not keep the law. The unstated portion of Paul's logic is this. They do not keep the law of God because they cannot keep the law of God. That's what Paul is saying to us. And so he points to Deuteronomy 27, 26 to show that anyone who doesn't perfectly perform the law of God is condemned by the law. Do you understand that? That if you think that there is one stitch in the righteous robe of Christ that is your own doing then you are obligated to the whole law of God and you have not trusted in Christ alone for your redemption. And so if a person doesn't know that he's lost, he doesn't know that he's a savior, and that's what Paul is doing in this chapter. He's demonstrating the lostness of the sinner apart from Christ. He is showing to these these precious people to whom he had come and preached the gospel who are now tempted to go away from the gospel He is showing to them, listen, you don't get it. You don't understand. If you follow this route, you are saying you have never trusted Christ at all. If you go this route, then you are obligated to keep the entirety of the law of God and you can't do it and you will be lost and doomed forever. Now, the second part of Paul's logic in this section 
is that he shows that law and gospel are antithetical ways of relating with God, relating to God, relating to this whole question of acceptance with God. There is the curse of the law. There is faith in Jesus Christ. These two things are antithetical. And so we read in verses 11 and 12, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, he quotes, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And so free grace is completely unconditional. Law is conditional through and through. Faith says, done. The law says, do. Faith says, it is all of grace from first to last. The law says, it is all of works from first to last. So the Apostle Paul shows us this awful plight of every human being born into this world. Let me tell you, as a pastor, as I have sat down with person after person after person through the years, I have never found a person who at his core was not, was not a merit monger. I don't care who that person has been. I don't care how, what the degradation of his life may have been, how humble he seems. Somewhere down deep, he commends himself and thinks that he ought to have a pass. That's every one of us. We all have a Pharisee deep down in the human heart. And the Apostle Paul is taking this word and he is showing the inflexibility of the law of God in order to root that Pharisee out of the heart. My heart and yours and all of the professing people of God. Who can imagine a worse dilemma than the dilemma faced by those of whom he writes that want to move into the direction of reliance upon even a little of the law, for Paul says it won't do. It won't do. Not a little of the law, but all of the law is necessitated if you move in that direction. Now, the third thing I want us to see is how is this curse removed? That's Paul's primary point, after all. How is the curse of the law removed? We're born in sin. The curse of the law has come upon us because we have broken the law of God. How is this curse removed? And the answer that Paul gives is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus removes the curse of the law. Verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, bought us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And there could not be a clearer verse in all of the Bible that teaches the substitutionary nature of the atonement of Jesus Christ. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What? A Savior! That is what Paul is teaching in this place. Now, I have shared with you from time to time that I am greatly, greatly disturbed by many a heresy that is entering into evangelical churches right now. There's the openness of God heresy. Uh, there is the heresy that, that some of you know about recently that denies that there is a literal hell. And by the way, if you remove that, you have, you have ruined the New Testament teaching, the Bible, biblical teaching on the atonement. Christ came as a substitute to redeem us from hell. And this whole idea, this whole truth that is revealed to us by Paul the Apostle of substitutionary atonement 
is being denied right and left by men calling themselves evangelicals in so-called evangelical pulpits. So that old theories of the atonement, such as the moral influence view of the atonement and the governmental theory of the atonement, and other views that deny the substitutionary nature of the atonement, these now have become very, very prevalent. Why we even have people that speak of this beautiful New Testament doctrine as divine child abuse. And so the substitutionary atonement by which we are saved can never be compromised. It is the very core of our faith. Christ was no curse in himself. He was the holy, harmless, sinless son of God. But the texts say he became, he became a curse for us. He became, this wasn't true of him, but he gave himself. He was not cursed, but he became a curse for us. So that confusion on this point is absolutely deadly. The closest possible parallel, I think, in Paul to what he reveals in this verse 13 is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And N.T. Wright takes that, that wonderful verse and completely turns it on its head and denies the substitutionary nature of the atonement in that passage, totally ignoring 2 Corinthians 5.19, not counting men's sins against them, so that when we come to verse 20 in 2 Corinthians and 21, uh, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, we find that now we have the imputed righteousness of Christ to those who believe. How is the curse of the law removed from us? The answer to the question is that my, my penalty was given to Christ as my substitute. There was the infliction of suffering. As Isaiah 53.10 tells us, it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. And so God treated Christ as I deserved to be treated. My sin was laid on him. My judicial judgment and penalty was laid upon him so that when I trust in Christ, his perfect record, his righteousness judicially is imputed to my account. So that when Christ cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you, believer, might never be forsaken. He endured the just penalty of the law so that you might never endure the just penalty of the law. He died, as Peter tells us, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And he really, really accomplished redemption. Do you understand that he really accomplished that for which he gave his life? Now, even at this point, I think that this, this whole doctrine of the particular nature of the atonement, particular redemption, becomes so very important. Because apart from this, there can be no substitutionary atonement. It's no substitution to say, he died for you if you fulfill conditions. And there are those who say that Christ died for sinners who are in hell, that he shed his infinitely valuable blood for sinners, and if they don't believe... 
that He shed His blood for them. He redeemed them, but they are going to go to hell forever and ever and ever. My friend, that is simply not what the New Testament teaches. I'm just thinking about this. Jacob, would you exchange hymn books with me? Now, Jake is going to come and he is going to do something. He's going to place in my hand the hymn book and I'm going to place my hymn book in his hand. Now, what happened? We substituted my hymn book for your hymn book. Now, what could be more simple, people of God? Christ actually came into this world, you may sit down, and substituted himself for me. He was there in my place. There was a real substitution. So that when he bore the curse of the law, the curse of the law was paid. When he paid the penalty, I owe it no more. That's the value of this great doctrine of the particular nature of the atonement. You know those words of Toplody that I love. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. Nor can his wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with his blood. If thou hast my discharge procured and fully in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. There's no double jeopardy. When Christ died for the sinner, that sinner in particular, as his substitute, and he paid the penalty for that sinner, that penalty was saved. And if he paid the penalty, you will not be asked to pay it again. That's the beauty of what Paul the Apostle is teaching in this passage. A real substitute who removed the curse of the law in my place standing. A fourth and final question. What does this mean for us who believe? Well, it means for us that we are redeemed from the law's curse. Again, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It means the debt is paid, propitiation is accomplished, the wrath of God has been satisfied, the law has been silenced, it no longer thunders against you, believer, and it means that you owe nothing because Jesus paid it all. It also means, according to this text, that the blessing of Abraham is now ours. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that blessing, of course, is that the gospel would go to the nations. That that gospel would spread through the world and be preached to lost sinners. Wrought in the spirit, maintained in the spirit, consummated in the spirit. And it also means that there is an objective peace now. We are not saved by the quality of our, of our contrition. 
We don't contribute anything by the quality of our obedience. We don't contribute anything by the quality of our faith or the quality of our repentance. I'm sure that you want the quality of your contrition to be deep. You want the quality of your faith to be great. You want the quality of your repentance to be remarkable. But it contributes nothing, whether it is great or small. You're not saved by the quality of your contrition. There is an objective peace that is wrought in the cross of Jesus. And that is the basis for the subjective peace that I experience in my heart. Subjective peace can have no other ground than the objective peace purchased in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the ground of all assurance of faith is here. The ground of your assurance cannot be different than the ground of your acceptance with God. You know, when George Whitfield first met Howell Harris, uh, that great Welsh minister, the first thing that he did was to look Howell Harris in the eye and say, Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? If you trust in Christ who died on the cross, you can know that your sins are forgiven. Read sometimes the biography of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, especially that first volume, which I've read over and over and over again. You find there that Mrs. Lloyd-Jones lived with Dr. Lloyd-Jones under his ministry for two years without assurance of faith. And when Dr. Lloyd-Jones gave her some material to read, finally she began to understand that she had been looking all in the wrong place, that it was on the basis of what Jesus did for her when he shed his blood on the cross, that she could be assured that she belonged to him. And so the conclusion is this. Believer, God sees none of your sin in his court of law. None of it. Oh, I have fallen, you might say, this week. I have failed my Lord this week. I have sinned so grievously this week. And indeed, child of God, we want to grow in grace and we want to mature. But God sees no sin against you in his court of law. None of it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I took a young man out of my study one day as we were talking about this theme. And I said, look up, look up, look up. Now look here, look here, look east, look west. Look, how far is it? I don't know how far it is. Well, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that's why Owen says, show me the sinner that can stretch his sins to the dimensions of God's grace. You can't do it because his grace is infinitely greater than your sin. And so what about you here tonight? Either you are under the curse of the law or you have trusted in Christ, cursed for you, which is true. Are you under the curse of the law? If so, then there is that gaping judgment that awaits you. Or have you trusted in Christ who has already fulfilled the law, has met its demands, and paid its penalty for the sinner who trusts in Him? No human merit, no works of the law, but Christ received by faith alone. How do you know that God accepts you? Well, you know it in the words of that great hymn. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. 
When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, e'en then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Let us pray. Our Father, through this brief exposition this evening, we pray that you will help us to see more deeply and wonderfully the price Jesus paid and the purchase that he made when he shed his blood in order to redeem his people from the curse of the law. May we not for a moment fall back into those old dark ways of wanting acceptance with you on the basis of that which we think we could acquire or we could acquire nothing. May we find ourselves completely, completely dependent upon the righteousness of Christ alone, that we may dressed, be dressed in that, that royal robe woven for us on the loom of the cross, accepted completely in that dress, for we have none to offer of our own. May we take this good message, this good news, this gospel to the four corners of the world through this congregation. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use us, that lost sinners might come to faith in Jesus Christ, whom you have chosen for yourself before the foundations of this world were laid. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.